This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Adi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. So I want to I speak to us this morning about something that's very hard to talk about, but I think really important and timely. And I have the sheets here more as a reference for you so you can look back later and see how the pieces of this puzzle have come together in my mind. But I want to invite you also not to get lost in the sheets as we, as we think together. Koter haptsatsa, the diameter of the bomb. The diameter of the bomb was 30 centimeters, and the diameter of its effective range about seven meters, with four dead and 11 wounded. And around these in a larger circle of pain and time, two hospitals are scattered and one graveyard. But the young woman who was buried in the city she came from at a distance of more than 100 kilometers enlarges the circle considerably. And the solitary man mourning her death at the distant shores of a country far across the sea includes the entire world in the circle. And I won't even mention the crying of orphans that reaches up to the throne of God and beyond making a circle with no end and no God. I think of Yehuda Amichai's words after every mass shooting in this country, after every bomb, after every attack, the concentric circles of pain that echo from each and every act of violence, the families that are torn asunder, the shattered lives and dreams and homes, the endlessly reaching reverberative trauma of each and every act of violence. Mark Oppenheimer wrote in the New York Times last week about the toll of the Tree of Life shooting. They didn't just kill 11 people, he wrote, they killed a minion. He cited one survivor who testified at the trial that in the years since the event, we don't have the same attendance. He explains that the synagogue lost members who could be counted on to make the minion the essential quorum of 10 Jews required for certain prayers. They were killed, he said. I think of Ami Ayalon, the Israeli general, who I've quoted often here, who said that the way that Jews count our dead after each attack is not one, two, three, but six million one, six million two, six million three, that every time a Jew is targeted in the world for being a Jew, we experience it not as a fresh wound, but as a new tear in an old festering wound. The trauma, the fear, not only of the Jewish community of Pittsburgh, but of all of us everywhere. We felt it here in this small circle of family. There were more than a million of Jews from Squirrel Hill at Ikar the morning of that shooting. And even those who weren't from Pittsburgh, all of us spent into, sent into a spiral of 
thinking about our safety and our kids' safety in their day schools and in their Hillels and here at Shul and out in the world in a different way, forever scarred by the realization that the golden days for Jews in America may have come to an end, that the illusion of safety and security is but a dangerous myth. And from this point forward, new rules apply. Better stay vigilant. You have no idea when the next shoe will drop. I just wrote a book about healing. And yet, I think a lot about what will never heal, what will never be retrieved after certain ruptures so profound. We're now in the sentencing phase, in the trial of the man who massacred 11 Jews as they prayed on Shabbat morning four and a half years ago. They didn't have to, but the prosecutors chose to pursue the death penalty in this case. Should the man who entered one of our most sacred spaces in the most sacred of times, who spewed anti-Semitic vitriol online for months before the shooting, who called immigrants invaders, who accused Jews of being the enemy of white people and children of Satan, who tore through that synagogue shouting, I just want to kill Jews, should this man pay for his crimes with his life? Prosecutors have argued that he harbored deep murderous animosity toward all Jewish people. And I don't doubt that they're telling the truth. The question is, should he pay for life with life? The Torah is clear. In Leviticus chapter 24, verse 17, we read, If a person kills another human being, surely that person shall die. And yet our rabbis, despite their fidelity to the biblical text, or maybe precisely because of their fidelity to the biblical text, do not let it end there. Instead, they search for hints, for clues of how we might extract from Torah another way to live, another way to build a just society. And they scaffold one obstacle after the next to essentially preclude the death penalty in almost any circumstance. The Mishnah, our ancient code of law, famously asserts that a court that executes even one person in 70 years would be considered a court with blood on its hands. Several of our greatest sages claim that had they been members of the high court in Jerusalem, they would have abolished the death penalty altogether. They took this position because even though the biblical text granted them permission to uphold and enact capital punishment, to take a life for a life. Their moral conscience, their moral compass could not abide it. They understood that the limitations of human judgment must necessarily translate into limitations on human power. They knew that any justice system is vulnerable to human weakness. And when lives are on the line, there is simply too much at stake to take a risk. They could not bear to live in a society in which we, flawed human beings, with flawed legal systems and social structures, might inadvertently take the life of an innocent person. And all of these are good, practical reasons to permanently abolish the death penalty, articulated 2,000 years ago, long before the reality of our current system 
rife with, with racism and inequity could have been fathomed. But the truth is that if you look at our tradition, our rabbis were concerned more about more than just flawed systems and flawed people enacting those systems. They were concerned about more than potential errors in judgment and innocent people dying. Before every capital case, the judges would turn to the witnesses and they would exhort them, reminding them that every single human being is created B'Tselem Elohim in God's own image. And those of you who've been around this community now for years know that this is the very core of my faith. This is the fuel of my rabbinate, and in many ways, the fuel of our community, the promise and the premise that fills my life with meaning. It's the claim that every single human being has a unique story to tell in this world, and therefore the death of any person, whether guilty or innocent, whether cruel or kind, is the death of an entire world. And I believe this with full faith, that every person is bestowed with infinite value and with inestimable worth, and that cannot only apply to the people who behave nicely in this world. I believe that even those who have caused great harm can change, that their hearts can be awakened through a rigorous process of truth-telling and reconciliation, that they can walk toward healing. And I also believe, as I know many of you do, that Brian Stevenson was right when he said that each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. And I determined a long time ago that these beliefs demand the immediate and full abolition of the death penalty in our country. A system so anachronistic, so heinously corrupt, so morally anemic that its persistence in our time boggles the mind. And yet, even speaking about these lofty ideas, in light of the massacre of 11 of our Jewish siblings in Shul one Shabbat in 2018, even speaking about infinite worth and human dignity and God's own image and the possibility of tshuva, even speaking about it feels callous and vulgar. This Torah portion that we just read today calls us to contend with the conundrum of Pinchas, the man who takes out a spear and in his righteous indignation slaughters Zimri and Cosby in an act of heinous, irreversible extrajudicial violence, which he then appears to be rewarded for by God. The question is, why would God respond to this self-righteous vigilantism with a blessing? And yet, here too, there are hints, hints throughout the story that allow us to tell a new and different story that undercut the obvious message of this story that violence can be responded to with blessing. Hints that force us to look more deeply and that warn us that violence is not the answer, even after terrible crimes have been committed. Immediately after Pinchas, we heard today a very long census with very hard names being read out loud. Right, Charles? Count the Israelites, God instructs the leadership. Count the entire assembly. And the first tranche of very difficult names is brought forward. First, it's Ruvain, the eldest son's descendants. 
His second child, Falu, is named from the Paluite family. And, and if you wonder why the Torah moves so quickly from really intriguing, morally complex narratives like those of Pinchas driving a spear into very long and objectively boring lists of names, you might gloss over this section as I sometimes do. But maybe if you slow down, you start to read about Falu the, and see that his grandsons were two men named Datan and Aviram. Those names might be familiar because Datan and Aviram were partners with another man whose name is well known because he also has a Torah portion named after him, Korach. A couple of weeks ago, we read of a story that actually happened 48 years earlier in the desert when Datan and Aviram and Korach started a mutiny against Moses in the desert. It's too much for you, they said. All the people are holy. And for this mutiny, they were punished terribly. All of them and their families were called to stand in front of their tents and the ground opened up and they were swallowed up into the center of the earth. It was a terrible punishment for a terrible sin. And yet here, right after we read about Pinchas in his zealotry, the Torah drops a hint. Remember Datan and Aviram, the Torah says, and Korach and the terrible fate that they met? when they and all of their families were killed? Remember when they died, the whole lot of them? And yet here in our story, we learn something new. Uvnei Korach lo metu. Well, Korach's kids actually didn't die. Even though the Torah told us explicitly a couple chapters back that Korach and all of his family died and were sucked into the belly of the earth, here we learn that they did not die. We thought that they were swallowed up, but now here in this census, they reappear. By the way, they're not even B'nai Reuven. They don't even come from this clan. Why is the Torah interrupting this narrative to give us a census and then interrupting the census to tell us a random detail about the grandchildren, the children and grandchildren of a terrible man who committed a horrible crime who supposedly died years ago? Rashi explains that the children of Korach did not actually die because even though they were in on the plot originally, when the rebellion actually broke out, they made tshuva. They repented. They realized that there was another way. And here we learn two things. Number one, that the sons of Korach weren't only involved, they were instigators of that attack on Moses and Aaron years ago. And two, that they made tshuva that their hearts changed, that tshuva was awakened in them, the possibility of being someone different, and that was that. That was enough for God to spare them even as their families were devoured into the earth. Do you see what's happening here? It's just a few verses after Pinchas' act of violence, condemning a man and woman to death with the spear through their hearts, that the Torah hints to us that Korach's children leaders of the rebellion against Moses, they were changed so people can change and people can live. I know this is really hard for us, folks. It's painful to even speak about things like the possibility of people changing and like the innate dignity in every person when the life that is at stake is a person who has so egregiously harmed our community. 
I read this morning in the paper about the sentencing phase of the trial against the El Paso shooter, a man who drove 10 hours in order to kill Latino people, who he, like the shooter in Pittsburgh, saw as, enem as an enemy of white people, as an invader in this country. He was given 90 consecutive life sentences, but he was spared the death penalty. And I read about how families of the victims, some of them are outraged, and they say, this isn't justice. Justice would be him dying. And I hear those voices coming from the depth of that pain and that sorrow. And I've even heard people argue over the course of the past few months that anything less than the death penalty for the shooter in Pittsburgh would signal to the world that Jewish lives don't matter. Anyone who calls for life in prison is nothing more than an anti-Semite. You can point to the verse in Leviticus. You can argue from our Jewish tradition that there are circumstances in which a person's behavior is so horrific, so awful, that he gives up his right to be alive. But I hear the echoes of our tradition demanding something more from us. I hear hints being dropped throughout our Torah, calling us not to do what we can do, but to do what we must do, to live from our better angels, to remember that killing a killer does not preclude future killings. It does not make us any safer. It does not take away our pain. If anything, it means that endless appeals will keep this case alive for decades, re-traumatizing the victims who will need to engage an open wound in perpetuity. Killing a killer does not eliminate the threat of future anti-Semitic attacks. Only our vigilance and our love and our stubborn, persistent engagement with the world can protect us. Killing a killer does not show the world that Jewish lives matter. Our Jewish joy does. Our Jewish vitality does. Our raucous Shabbat dinners and our B'nai mitzvah and our Jewish writing and our Jewish teaching and our Jewish art and our Jewish chutzpah. The chutzpah of our continued existence as a people that have been pursued by haters for thousands of years, that is the greatest testament that Jewish lives matter. Pinchas is identified at the beginning of this parasha as the grandson of Aaron, Moses' brother. And the rabbis point out that we already know exactly who this guy is. We just named him three verses earlier. Why are we again hearing his genealogy here? Doesn't it seem redundant? Here's my best guess of why Pinchas is named as the grandson of Aaron here. When Korach rebelled and the earth split apart, the Israelite people were devastated by the loss, and a plague starts, much like the plague in today's Parsha. But Aaron, Moses' brother, the high priest, it says the following of, Vayamod ben hametim uben hachayim, v'teatzar hamagifa. Aaron stood between the dead and the living until the plague was checked. Lots of people died, but Aaron stood between the dead and the living until the plague was checked. Rashi says Aaron seized upon the garment of the angel of death and stopped him from killing despite himself. Remember, these were people who threatened Aaron and Moses' own leadership. They were the victims of this story. And yet Aaron stood between life and death and said, stop the death 
Death does not stop more death. Stop the killing. And I believe that we are now called the Jewish community that suffered so much heartache when our family in Pittsburgh was targeted to stand now between the dead and the living, to lead with our values, to demand that the state not take the life of a human being, even a human being who has committed atrocious and egregious wrongs, even to try to teach the world that taking the life of a human being is wrong. I believe that we are called to uphold the promise of the dignity of every person, even those who hurt us the most, and to collectively strive for a world in which we manifest with every breath the Brit Shalom, the covenant of peace that Pinchas is blessed with. Yehuda Amichai rightfully asks us to confront the reverberations of suffering after every murder. I pray that even as this suffering from this attack continues to reverberate, that the memories and the spirits of the victims of this terrible attack reverberate too in this world, always as a blessing and for generations to come. Our work in this time is to do everything in our power to make sure that that can happen. Shabbat Shalom. Hi, it's Rabbi Brous again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you maybe even in person sometime soon.